Come, Holy Spirit, take our minds and think through them. Take our lips and speak through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire. Amen. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, Jesus says to the chagrin of those who on any given trip carry multiple bags, numerous purses, and dozens of pairs of sandals. I speak as a living witness to this. I will not take a show of hands of those of you for whom travel light falls more into the category of unresolved New Year's resolution than I carry only one bag on vacation. I'm always amazed when traveling, seeing the people who have no, no bags. And I wonder where exactly are you headed? Humor notwithstanding, Jesus' invitation to his other disciples, the 70 he is sending out in the shadow of the more well-known 12, suggests that this excursion into the unknown requires mystery, humility, and risk, to borrow a phrase from the theologian Danielle McCrae. The 70 disciples or in some translations, the 72 disciples compose a larger, more anonymous circle of Jesus' faithful apprentices. Some scholars speculate that the narrator uses the number 70 or 72 as a stand-in for the number of nations there were understood to be in that era of history. So if you asked a Palestinian Jew of that time, how many countries are there in, in the world? They would say 70 or 72, depending on their accent. The reasoning goes that if this good news of God's imminent reign is to be announced to the 12 tribes of Israel first, it is then to be announced to the 70 or so nations of the world because this joy, this good news, this love at the core of Israel's God, the God of Jesus Christ, cannot be contained to just one nation, one religion, one people. When the 70 are traveling, they are to rely on the generosity and hospitality of God as provided by other people. No, they do not get the luxury of access to Yelp or Airbnb reviews when vetting hosts. They must knock on the doors themselves, pronounce peace themselves, and offer themselves to the mercy of the person on the other side of the threshold. Eat and drink whatever they provide and cure their sick. Then say, God's reign God's kingdom, God's commonwealth, God's presence, God's benevolent economy has come near you. This strategy, however counterintuitive and ill-advised as it is, was Jesus' chosen medium of announcing his urgent, history-altering message of God's breaking into God's world in the person of Jesus Christ through sharing meals, the teaching of parables, demonstrations in and around the city of 
the holy city of Jerusalem, raising the dead, proclaiming good news to the poor, and climactically being executed on a Roman cross, being buried in a borrowed tomb, and ultimately being resurrected from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if that's all I said today, that's a sermon in itself. As marketing experts are fond of saying, the medium is the message. If God invites you to travel without the trappings of luxury and comfort, this is a God who will provide you with enough for the journey. If God says, don't book with Airbnb, God is saying, trust me to make the reservations for you. Instead of carrying a bunch of stuff, allow me to carry you, Jesus seems to say to the seventy. The medium has a way of conveying the message. But further in this scene of tender instruction and sending, it also conveys something about the original messenger. The word at the center of creation about God. In Isaiah, God is a mother who comforts her children, a mother whose glorious bosom nurses and satisfies her infants. This is the God of Israel who first sends out the 12, then the 70, the God who rebuilds from the ruins of decimated cities, the God whose prerogative is the healing and joy of her people. This portion of Isaiah was composed during an especially difficult season in the Jewish people's history. Their crowning glory, Jerusalem, has been destroyed by imperial occupiers, and they are only able to re-inhabit it when those occupiers, the Babylonians, are themselves overthrown by Persia, another empire, another set of occupiers. And so, unlike the 70, those who return so, and so, not unlike the 70, those who return to Jerusalem are doing so based on a promise, a divine promise, a God promise. I will extend prosperity to Jerusalem like a river. The word translated prosperity here is the word Shalom in the original language. Biblical scholars are always quick and preachers are always quick to say that the word shalom means more than just peace in our English language. It is a sort of all-encompassing, holistic peace. It's wholeness. Shalom is a living wage. Shalom is reproductive health care that is safe and accessible. Shalom is housing of one's own. Shalom is accessible transportation. Shalom is food security. Shalom or peace or holistic peace or wholeness is noticing the number of pedestrians and travelers who are attacked and left for dead along the Jericho Road. And instead of just helping every single individual on the road, or one in the case of the Good Samaritan in just a few weeks, Shalom asks, 
Why is this road so treacherous in the first place? Does somebody have the number for the Jericho Transit Authority? I need to make some calls. We need to do something about this road. The peace God promises for a recovering Jerusalem is a holistic peace, a wholeness, not a cheap calm. And this promise of a restored city, of the hospitality of strangers, is God's promise even to us in our own day. This promise of wholeness, of a generative justice, of a creative and dynamic joy is especially sharp when we are faced with the onslaught of suffering, confusion, and pain of the last several weeks. I am indeed actually, as all of you know, after about five years in this pulpit, to the way an old gospel song frames this divine promise. Have you any rivers that seem uncrossable? Have you any mountain that you cannot tunnel through? God specializes in things impossible, and God will do what no other power but Holy Ghost power can do. If I were an attorney in a celestial court in the court of heaven this morning, I'd call the 70 to the witness stand and ask them about the promises of God. When, when God promised to heal the sick and meet your needs, did God do that? And then I'd call Sarah and Abraham to the stand and ask, when God promised that you'd bear in old age, did God do that? And Sarah and Abraham would say yes, but not on our timeline. And then I'd call Daniel, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, Saints Mary and Joseph, Lazarus, Mary and Martha, the woman at the well in John's gospel, the Roman centurion whose domestic servant Jesus heals, and Jairus whose daughter Jesus raises from the dead. Does God keep God's promises, I'd ask? Yes, they would say in joyful unison. And how do I know? How do I know? How do you know that God keeps God's promises? Because in the words of my ancestors, I have tried God for myself. I have known God to be a lawyer in the courtroom, a doctor in the sick room, a friend in times of isolation, and a confidant when I need someone to listen. How do I know God keeps God's promises? Because this God, the God who sends 12, and the God who sends 70, and the God who sends many more out to announce good news to the poor, and recovery of sight to the blind, and the year of of Jubilee. This is the God who specializes in things thought impossible. 
This is the God who will carry you across rivers that seem uncrossable. This is the God who will carry you through mountains that you cannot tunnel through on your own. And this is the same God who in tenderness and mercy carries you in her arms and dandles you on her knee even as you approach this altar with open palms and a broken heart saying, I cannot do this on my own. Amen.